Whoa, I guess that doesn't work. <laughs> Great start. My name is Clint, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I'm a member here at Redemption Hill, and I'm pitch-hinting for Dennis occasionally here. And so it's great to be with you this morning. My voice sounds okay, but I'm a bit sick this morning. I got sick last night about 8.30 p.m. when that Arizona State quarterback (laughs) threw that touchdown pass in the last few seconds, and I've been pretty sick since then. (laughs) So it's great to be with you this morning, and we're going to be uh, exploring the scripture this morning. So if you have a Bible, you might want to bring that and have it out. And if you don't, we have a whole bunch here on the aisles. And if you need a Bible to follow along, just uh, bring, uh, raise your hand and uh, someone will bring you one. Yeah, they're in these white baskets here. But last week, we began a series on the book of Acts that will take us for a number of weeks. And Dennis launched us on this series. And it was a, it was a great start to a, and a, a very exciting book, the book of Acts. And we're going to continue that series this morning. And what I'd like to do this morning is focus on one question in particular. And it's a a fairly easy question, and it's the question of, let's see if this works. There, there's your question. Asking the question, what is a Christian? What exactly is a Christian? This is a church, and we're gathered here, reading the Bible, having communion, worshiping, and so on. But we want to not assume anything as we get started with Redemption Hill La Habra. We want to be able to deal with the basics and know that uh, we understand where we're coming from. And if you were to answer that question to someone, if they were to ask you, what is a Christian, what would you say? Well, a Christian certainly is someone who believes in Jesus Christ because of the name Christian itself, it's built on Christ, and it involves a set of beliefs about Jesus Christ, that he was God in the flesh, that he was the Son of God, that he came, he died on the cross, he shed his blood, and gave himself as an offering for our sin, and that by putting our faith in him, we can have a relationship with God, because it was ruptured because of sin. And that's all good and dandy. But there's still another dimension of what it means to be a Christian, and that's what we want to talk about today. Because what the book of Acts will stress, in addition to these things, is that a Christian is a person who has the Holy Spirit living within them. A Christian is a person with the Spirit. So I want to ask you to turn for a moment to the book of Acts, and we will uh, take a look at this together Uh, Acts chapter uh, 1 is where we began last week, and just to highlight a few things to remind us of some of the things that we learned last week, or if you're here for the first time, this will bring you up to speed. But this book of Acts begins with, uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and that refers back to the Gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit 
to the apostles when he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus has gone to the cross, he's died, but he's resurrected. He appears for 40 days and he proclaims the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit is active in his life. And then he says this interesting thing. While speaking to these followers of his uh, and with them, he ordered them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that is what we will see the fulfillment of this morning as we move to Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13, that will form the focus of our, uh, our time here this morning. So the next passage speaks then about Jesus' ascension, and it says, in the middle of it, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's another reference to that Spirit, that he's coming, he will empower the followers of Jesus, to accomplish a mission that God has given. Now, last week, Dennis gave us this uh, fabulous way of conceiving of this, that the work of what it means to be a Christian essentially is this. We are ordinary people with an irresistible message doing extraordinary things because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is essentially the message of Acts, but it's essentially what it means, really, to be a Christian. It means one who possesses the Spirit, the God's Spirit living within us, empowering us with an extraordinary message to do extraordinary things. That is really the heart of what Christianity is all about. It's not just forgiveness of sin. It's not just improving our lives and living a way that is better than we did before, and getting rid of some bad things and putting on some good things. We are people given a message and empowered by God's Spirit to live this out. So the passage continues then, uh, and we're going to summarize this really quickly here in chapter 1, verses 12 and following. What we have is this. The disciples then returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it lists the the 11 at this point. And all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons uh, at that time was about 120 people. So all these people in an upper room in Jerusalem living in obedience to Jesus and that obedience at this point just means we're waiting. We're waiting for something to happen. And they're not exactly sure. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. What is this promise of the Father that they're waiting for? During that time, one of their number had betrayed Jesus, Judas. And we get the account in this chapter of Judas Uh, basically going out and uh, committing suicide. It's a tragic ending to his story, and 
there are 11 apostles, and now they are choosing a 12th apostle. And there's a lot that we could talk about with relationship, why do we need 12 apostles, and do we have 12 apostles today? And no, those were the 12 original followers of Jesus who were with him throughout his earthly ministry, and they wanted that number to be 12. There's similarity with the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but uh, they bring that number back to 12 by choosing a man named Mattathias, Matthias, that uh, becomes part of that number. And then we come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and this will be our focus this morning. So follow along with me on chapter 2, 1 to 13, that will describe the coming of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. We want to reflect on that a little bit this morning and basically ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean for us as we think about the book of Acts and its relevance for the church today? Let me begin from the very beginning here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost, have you ever thought about that? What is Pentecost? It's built on the word pente, which is five, and uh, it's basically 50 days is what the word means. It's, uh, there's a Hebrew word that stands behind it, but one of the key things is realizing that it's one of the three most important festivals within Judaism. In Judaism at the time, there was, there was Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was Tabernacles. And people came from all over Uh, the Mediterranean world, to celebrate in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the word vacation never appears in the Bible. But there was something similar to what we would have with a two-week vacation because people would come, Jews living all over the Mediterranean world, would come to Jerusalem for one of these three pilgrim festivals, Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles. Passover occurred in early spring and is uh, very close in time and proximity to when we would celebrate Easter. 
because Jesus is actually referred to in the Bible as our Passover. He was the Passover lamb. So in early spring, usually around April, we celebrate Easter, which is similar to the time of, of Pascha or Passover. 50 days after that would be Pentecost. And that usually fell in early June. I believe this year it fell on June 8th. So that's about the time frame. And you think about June, I grew up on a farm, so I know a little bit about this. It was a Jewish harvest festival. And so if you grow grain, wheat, or barley, that's about the time that wheat and barley are harvested in the fields. And so Pentecost was a harvest festival, and there were certain rules and laws that were involved in celebrating Pentecost. Uh, but people would bring some of their first fruits, offer them to the Lord, and it was a, a great time of celebration. Now, this is in Jerusalem. And all of these festivals were centered around Jerusalem, and it was a big deal. In the first century, the static population of Jerusalem was probably around 100,000 people. And we'll give or take a few thousand people. But at the time of Passover, at the time of Pentecost, the population of Jerusalem would swell to close to a million people. There were a lot of people that just descended on Jerusalem for these uh, key festivals like this. You wonder, where did they all stay? <laughs> and you think, the Apostle Paul used to make tents. Ah, there we go. So people with tents and staying in a variety of different places like this. But, I mean, it was just jam-packed. Worse than Disneyland on opening day or something. But it was, uh, it was really full. So the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost also became so associated in Judaism with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And this may be significant for our passage because the giving of the law was the sign of the Old Covenant. The giving of the Spirit that we're going to look about is the sign of the New Covenant. And so the fact that this happens on the day of Pentecost is very significant, the coming of the Spirit, because it marks this change in the way that God is dealing with his people. No longer with one person, one group of people, the Jews, but now universalized to all through the giving of the Spirit. And they were together in one place. And I make a quick comment about this. I can't resist this. Um, in 1967, Israel fought a six-day war, and after that war, there was a certain area in the city of Jerusalem that was now available to them for excavation. And during that time, archaeologists uncovered some buildings that went back to the very first century, to the time of Jesus. And this is the remnants of a house that goes back to first century prior to the Jewish War of AD 70. And it was a palatial mansion of a house, and it had belonged to Jews living in the city. And if we were to uh, do a diagram of it, it would look something like this. And I just put that up there because it's an illustration of the fact that in Jerusalem at that time, there were homes that were huge places 
that could have accommodated 120 people. And so a number of scholars have pointed to this as the kind of place that might have served the early church when the 120 were gathered in an upper room. This would have been an upper room. I'm not saying this is the place. I mean, it could have been. Uh, But there were houses and things of this nature that were available to them at that time. And they're gathered in one place because they are waiting for the promise of the Father. The text goes on and says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and then divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. A mighty rushing wind came into the house while they were there. I need a volunteer to talk about this. Mel, I see you looking away. (laughs) So, could you come up? And I'm going to come down. So, just stand right there. So the Bible talks about a mighty rushing wind. Okay? Are you scared? No, you shouldn't be, because this is nothing to be scared of. It's not a gun. So tell me if you feel this. I'll stay way back. (laughs) Do you feel that? Okay. Would you do me a favor and catch it this next time? Just catch it, and then I'm going to put this down, and then we'll look at it. Okay, catch it in your hand. Okay, hold on. Let me see what you caught. Where is it? (laughs) nowhere okay why can't I see it because it's wind and the Greek word for wind is pneuma which is actually the same word that we use for our Holy Spirit so one other thing if I could ask you I brought a kite today too it's a nice kite from the 99 cent store Um, I hope it holds together long enough for this But before you sit down, I want to give this to you, and you can take it home and and keep it. Uh, But I'd like you to fly it. It Just, whoops, we don't have to fly it very high because we've got the ceiling. But if you could just fly it a little bit just to show everybody how a kite works. Okay? So go ahead and fly the kite. (laughs) When I was a kid, if you you just hold, hold it and then just run and it... It'll fly a little bit. I think it's how it works. So you just... No, in the air. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, it's not going to fly very well. Thank you. Give her a hand. The mighty rushing wind that came on Pentecost, wind is an illustration of the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit is God's empowering presence in our lives. The wind is what enlivens us and makes us people. When God created Adam, what did he do? He formed him and breathed into him the breath of life. In Ezekiel 37, there's this uh, valley of dry bones and flesh comes on them, but they're just inanimate 
until the wind comes and reanimates them, and they then breathe, and they are able to live. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. We also use it. This is a pneumatic uh, kind of uh, uh, tool that we have here. We use that word a lot. And the word that you'll find in uh, Acts all the way through is pneuma. It's a breath or a wind. And so the mighty rushing wind coming into this room where the 120 people were gathered is a symbol of the presence and the empowering presence of God to enliven and to bring uh, energy and life to people. And so it was not something you could catch and see. And so if I asked Mel, how do you know that there's really a spirit there? Because there's no, there's no empirical evidence for that. It's an experience that one has from God who enlivens us and enables us to do these things. There was also a second image that appeared, and f- the image is related to fire. And I, man, growing up on a farm, I love fire, so I've got some good analogies today. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do anything with fire here. But it says, divided tongues, or tongues as of fire. You know, and over the years, this image has really... It's just a hard one to grasp for me. It's been a hard one to grasp. Have you ever seen a fiery tongue? Well, actually, I have. Have you ever had a habanero, um, (laughs) especially salsa made out of habaneros? There's fiery tongues out of that, but I don't think this is what it means at all. It doesn't have to do with chili or uh, any of that kind of thing. This was a, a visual image of something that looked like a tongue, but on fire, coming down and being distributed on each person. It just seems so strange. But I think the imagery of the tongue was because of the language miracle that was going to take place. And there was this language miracle of people speaking in actual languages and other people being able to understand them. And the fire was a representation, once again, of the presence and power of God in all of this. So if you think about the Bible and the Old Testament and the way that fire works, God appeared to Moses in what? A burning bush. And when the people of Israel were going across the desert, how did he guide them by night? a pillar of fire, and we could multiply these images, but fire is also, in addition to wind, an image of the power and presence of God. And so all of these images, a tongue, a fire, a wind, demonstrate the presence and power of God in the person of his Holy Spirit. And it's important for me to say at this point that the Spirit of God is not just a force, The Spirit is a person that thinks and wills and so on, and the Spirit is God. God is three in one, and that's another topic for another day, but this is really significant that way. 
So the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice back in chapter 1, he said, Wait for the promise of the Father, and then you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to come back to that in a moment But the imagery of baptism for when someone becomes a Christian, there's going in the water and coming back up, that's baptism. But this is a baptism with the Spirit, that the Spirit comes upon a person in a significant way at this time. Now verse 5 and so on talks then about there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every, every nation. And the Spirit came upon them. Apparently, they're still in the upper room. And then they stream down. And there's 120 people. And they're all speaking in, 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 in what the passage would call tongues. And tongues is another word in the Bible four different languages. And we see this language miracle taking place immediately. They stream down. And remember, there's so many people in Jerusalem, and these people are proclaiming the mighty works of God on this day of Pentecost in a variety of different languages that they shouldn't speak because they're Galileans, most of them. And Galileans speak in a different dialect. And People living at the time in Jerusalem would normally speak Aramaic or they would speak Greek. But those from Galilee up north spoke with a different accent. I've actually been watching, Barbara and I have been watching uh, an old show on Netflix called The Andy Griffith Show. Have any of you ever seen that? I never realized that Andy Griffith had such a strong southern accent and this dialect and so on. You could tell he is not from Southern California. Uh, you can tell that these people were from Galilee. And uh, yet all these people were speaking in these other languages. Let me go back. Well, they were supposed to all fly in in different ways. But let me just point this out for a second here. Here is Jerusalem in the Mediterranean Sea. And each of these boxes represent the different places that all of these people came from. We have people from Babylon, from Elam, from Parthia, from Mesopotamia, uh, from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Uh, as far away from Rome, North Africa, Libya, Egypt, Arabia, all these different places, there were different languages that were spoke. Now in God's sovereignty, all of them were speaking Greek too, but when they went down from the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they weren't speaking Greek, they were speaking the languages of these areas, and people were able to uh, understand from those languages uh, what it was all about. And it goes on then, all these different people, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed. The mighty works of God, giving praise to what God had done in a variety of different ways. 
And this would encompass a lot of what we would call the gospel or the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And these are uh, the mighty works that God has done. So that's a quick overview of the passage that we have for today. And I hope it answers all of your questions. (laughs) Let me summarize with a few points that I think will tie all of this together. I got a new clicker this week, so I'm still learning how to use it. But essentially, five different points that I would like to make that just summarizes what we've just read and some of the details regarding what does this mean for us. The first one is when you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit. So we started by asking the question, what does it mean when someone, for someone to be a Christian? There's a certain set of things that we believe. We commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. But if we were to pull the, the screen back and look behind the curtain and we're able to catch a glimpse into the realm of the Spirit, there would be something incredibly profound that has taken place that we may not even realize. And that is that when we confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord, God comes into our lives in a profound and significant way. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. Now we blew air in poor Mel. Thanks again, Mel. But you don't see the Spirit. You may not even feel the Spirit. But there is an enlivening, an empowering that takes place that you didn't have before. There is something very, very different. And this is really critical for us to realize that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is not just a decision that we make. It's a divine, supernatural activity of God entering into our lives in a new way. A second thing that's really important in this is that the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in our lives is the sign and seal that you now belong to God. So becoming a Christian means receiving the Spirit, and then that entails a sense in which that Spirit is a sign that you now belong to God. Now a key passage in this regard is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says you believed, you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And that sequence is true for everyone. Everyone today who hears the gospel, believes it, God's Spirit comes into their lives, and that seal, that Spirit becomes a seal that you are now God's property. You belong to God. You are now a child of God, and you are His. And that's a tremendous promise that we have a sign and seal that we belong to God. We're no longer our own. We were bought with a price. But it also does something else. It binds us to each other. And so we often refer to the church as the body of Christ. And that body of Christ is not just people that gather on Sunday mornings. It's people who are related now to each other as brothers and sisters. 
1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one spirit. That one spirit brings us into the one body of Christ and makes us related to one another as true brothers and sisters, maybe even in a more profound sense than uh, brothers and sisters in a natural family. And fourthly, the Spirit enables you to please God. This is really, really huge because a lot of people get confused about what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people think of it as people who have made a decision to follow God and try to improve their lives. Um, What's missing sometimes is that spiritual dynamic that empowers the new life. Jesus asks of us a lot of things that are very, very difficult. One of Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount is, love your enemies. Now, we can say that in an easy and trite way, but to love someone that has betrayed you, to love someone that has let you down, that's not natural. To love the unlovely, to develop this virtue is unnatural. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. It's like trying to fly a kite when there's no air, when there's no wind. How do you fly a kite if there's no wind? The Spirit is who enables us to develop develop the virtues that Christ calls us to develop. If you struggle with an area of your life that you just can't seem to control, it's something that's just out of control and it's a passion that you have that, uh, you know, whatever you've tried, it just doesn't work. The message of this passage is there's now hope because you have a spirit, the spirit of God living in you that will enable you to live the life that God has called you to live, to take off the old stuff and to put on the new. The day of Pentecost is the event that represents the coming of the spirit, and that is significant. And then finally, and we'll end with this, the spirit empowers you to tell the mighty works of God. They came streaming down out of the upper room, and they were proclaiming the mighty works of God. Now, we might summarize the mighty works of God as the gospel, the good news that God has commissioned us to share with the world, the irresistible message that Dennis talked about last week. Jesus has commissioned us to share that irresistible message with others. It's not going to come naturally for you to do that, but you have to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit who resides within you to do this uh, and to be able to communicate this good news. So the day of Pentecost, in summary then, is a day that was unlike any other day and there will never be a day like it again. That event was a one-time event that marked the transition from the Old Covenant to the New, from the Law of Moses and a Judaism that was filled with the law to a new life based upon Jesus Christ and a new covenant that was there. It's an unrepeatable event. The tongues that came on people at that time were languages. 
It was a miraculous event, and they went out and shared the good news of God. There is another gift of tongues that's unrelated to this, that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But this is an event that marks the birthday of the Christian church. So Pentecost is really, really important for us as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as marking the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. And that means that we possess the Spirit. So let me conclude our time with prayer, and then I'll ask Joe to come back up. Father, I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that empowers us and enlivens us, that gives us new life and enables us to declare the mighty works of God. And I pray that you will help us to that end. I also pray, Lord, that you will help us to live the life that you've called us to live, developing the virtues of love, developing an ability to take off things that displease you in our lives. Help us to cooperate with the Spirit and to learn to depend on the Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.